Well, good morning. Well, on that note, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. If you want to uh, turn in your Bibles or if you've got one of those little doohickeys in your back pocket, you can tap there as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, is where we'll be today. As we are, congratulations, in our halfway point of our spring series that we've been calling Smoke in Mirrors, uh, subtitled, uh, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the Book of Ecclesiastes, the book right here before us. And a couple weeks ago when we opened the series, I began with a, uh, a little quote that has served as kind of a, a little bit of a north star through the series, which uh, we'll, we'll kind of put it up here again to, to review. In 1933, there's a journalist by the name of George Morromeo. Uh, he wrote uh, his kind of history of Los Angeles. And uh, this quote has just been uh, sticking with me uh, over the past few weeks. He said, Los Angeles, it should be understood, is not a mere city. On the contrary, Los Angeles is and has been since 1888, when it got started, a commodity. Something to be advertised and sold to the people like automobiles, cigarettes, and mouthwash. Los Angeles is more than just the setting of our lives. It's something that we're being sold or shaped in. And so for the past four weeks, as we've been making our way through Ecclesiastes, we've been kind of looking at this book and uh, joining in with the, the preacher, the main author, kind of voice in the book, or as we've been calling him, the deconstructor, as he's been investigating so many of these pursuits in life under the sun that really line up with so much of what Los Angeles is selling and shaping us in. Things like career and fame, pleasure, control, and even last week with justice. The deconstructor's been looking at and examining every single one of these and finding all of them amount to vanity, uh, is the Hebrew word hevel, smoke and mirrors is the language we use. It's all of these things that are elusive. They slip through your fingers. You can't quite get your hand around them. And this week, what we're going to move to at the halfway point is we're going to investigate literally what we are being advertised and sold, not just, you know, the shaping kind of cultural, you know, priorities or motivations, but quite literally what we are being sold and advertised in. Now, before looking at the deconstructor, I think we should begin with an, uh, an Austrian neurologist's American nephew to really get things going. Sigmund Freud, as many of you would recognize his name, uh, was a major thought leader within his day because what he was pushing forward, Freud was, was unlike many thought in the, the times leading up to him that human beings, that we were largely just rational beings, that we largely were thinking beings, Freud came along and said, not, not really. We are driven by so many of these unconscious desires, these things that we aren't fully aware of. They're not conscious decisions we make. They're they're the kind of backware program that's loading and motivating us through all of these things. Now, <clears throat> Freud had an American nephew by the name of Edward Bernays who took his uncle's work and began to run with it and in the process became the father of modern advertising. By all counts, he is where we have all the advertising that you see today. In his 1928 book, Propaganda, that's literally what the name of the book is, uh, he, he wrote this. He said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government. It's like weird conspiracy theory, but keep going. Mm -hmm. Which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. And so what Edward Bernays, along with Freud, was putting forward is if you can figure out which levers and how to work those unconscious drives, you can move people in a particular direction. You can move a country in a particular direction. It should come as no surprise, but a sad reality, Bernays and Freud both being Jewish, their work was taken by Nazi Germany. This is how you got the, the Third Reich's rise to power. But that's, this same mentality was adopted and utilized not just in Germany but also in America in a radically different way. You see, up until this point with Edward Bernays, advertising within the, the large American way of being was largely aimed at your rationality, your brain. And so what was advertised around the functionality of something? What made something better in what it does than the, the, the other alternatives? What began to shift under Bernays' work was now a move towards appealing to those unconscious desires. And so cars were no longer about how fast it can go. It was, cars became a symbol of, of male sexuality, right? This is why still men like, like lament ever having to get a minivan and see it at the end of their life. Why? Why? It's a car. 
On the ground, that means nothing, but there's an unconscious social desire that's being prompted that my masculinity is tied to my car. Uh, cigarettes, which were, you know, so prolific within everybody back in the day, but women largely only smoked at home, which led to them not smoking that much. And so Bernays was hired to work with the cigarette manufacturer, and he b- blew up this whole new movement where they started referring to cigarettes as torches of freedom, that women smoking outwardly in public was a sign of like, ha-ha, to the patriarchy. But all the while, what was he doing? It was, it was building up the, the selling of cigarettes. He worked with the Betty Crocker company. The reason why you add an egg to those easy-make cakes is originally wasn't the plan. But the whole point was so many uh, you know, stay-at-home wives had a hard time with like, the fact that it's just too easy. There's no work for it in me at all. I'm just adding liquid. Bernays said, have them add eggs. So they're still, they're, they're, like he just thought through. Bernays, he, the, whenever you think about the need for a hearty breakfast in the morning, that's because he worked with a bacon uh, manufacturer and, and seller. And they couldn't sell enough bacon. And so he went around and got a bunch of doctors to say, just to agree with this like subjective statement that a hearty breakfast is, is, is the best thing for someone. They ran with that. And all the advertising about hearty breakfast, what was always next to it? Bacon. And bacon sales went up. He invented things like the celebrity endorsement, product placement. This is the age we live in. And it, 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 was, it was concocted. It was made by someone. Bernays worked really closely with a guy named Paul Mazur. He worked for Lehman Brothers. He summarized this shift really well. He said, we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This shift continues and grows, not just growing, but also being celebrated. President Herbert Hoover in 1928, speaking to a group of advertisers and PR men, said this, you have taken over the job of creating desire and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines, machines which have become the key to economic progress. Through wars, through recessions, this whole movement has continued to develop within the American psyche and with advertising, marketing, how we think, and how we work. And all the way to 1955, my last little quote kind of summarizing all this, uh, Victor Lebo, he wrote in, the article for, in the, uh, an article for the Journal of Retail, he said this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, I'm not kidding, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his food, his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. So the big question behind all of this is, sure, this might be great for the economy, but has this shift truly transformed humans into constantly moving happiness machines? All of the research points to no. In fact, since 1958, American, on average, our well-being continues to drop year over year. This, our feeling of collective, like, bleh, that didn't begin with COVID. That didn't begin with somebody's president. 1958, we've all been slowly moving down this trajectory. And 100 years into this, it shows no signs of stopping. Not just that descent of well-being, but also this consumptive materialism. It is continuing within our society today. Robert Wuthnow, he's a sociologist at Princeton. He says this, we live in a materialist culture and we want money and possessions and very few people have heard a voice, a powerful voice, telling them to resist those impulses or how to resist those impulses. Organized religion has not done a good job of challenging people to examine their lifestyles. We need a strong voice to wake us up from the fact that we are not constantly moving happiness machines. We are like these soulless automatons, buying and selling, trying to find a heart. We need a voice to wake us up. And, and what now laments the fact that organized religion and Christianity as part of that has not offered something 
of, of value in this conversation. We need a voice that helps us to examine and even resist this age. And, and the deconstructor, what we're looking at in the book of Ecclesiastes, will show us that any fault on the part of organized religion, specifically of Christianity, in speaking to these things is not a fault that is found within the book itself. But it's largely around the way that we handle and we look to and the parts of the Bible that we excuse and look over. And we're at very one of those today. Where the deconstructor is going to speak to particularly these issues and call us to pay attention, to examine, and to resist this age. Would you join me in standing as we read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. So we'll read this together. I will pray for our time together today, and then uh, we'll begin to see what the deconstructor says for us. We'll unpack it a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's smoke and mirrors. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is sleep. Uh, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich won't let them sleep. There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And though he is the father of a son, he has nothing in his hand to give. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain, shall there, uh, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and in sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen what is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, smoke and mirrors. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For the stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness the child's name is covered. Moreover, the child has not seen the sun or known anything, yet the child finds rest rather than the rich." Even though the rich should live 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. That is the grave. All the toil of man for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, smoke and mirrors, or striving after wind. Let's pray. So, Father, we, oh, we, we acknowledge that so many of the issues uh, that we face within our world, the confusion, the difficulties, uh, so regularly is not because you haven't spoken to it some way what those issues are, but more or less the fact that we run from the, the words that you have for us. And so, God, we pray that today we'd be a community who sits ourselves underneath the word and that you would speak to us. I pray that we would be investigative of, of what's going on within our hearts and our relationship to wealth and possessions, and that we might find uh, the better way, the good and fitting way, as the deconstructor says. Would you speak? God, would you help us to humble ourselves, that we would put down our walls to hear your words in the ways that we actually need to, no longer to justify or defend, but to hear. Help us. Amen. We'll go and be seated. 
Well, midway through the halfway point in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are at what is not just the middle of the book, but the darkest chapter, the darkest section, really, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And and for many, they would argue, one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. And so this is your first Sunday with Collective. Welcome. It's not normally this hardcore, uh, but, you know, this is is where we're at in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, And so so here's where we are. Now, the whole point of, the, 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 of what we've just read, to kind of summarize it, is, is really his focus, the deconstructor's focus on how those who, who seek to pursue and accrue more, whether that's wealth, possessions, comfort, experiences, really summarizing that phrase, they lack nothing they desire. He's going to look at that. He puts it underneath the lamp. He investigates it. And this is one of these chapters, one of the parts of Ecclesiastes that really compelled me in settling in on us deciding to preach this, this book, you know, a couple weeks ago. And, and now, as we've gotten here, I've been looking for, like, the escape pod to jettison myself off so I don't have to preach this passage. Now, for, for a couple of two main reasons. The first is this is a hard word for what is one of, if not the primary motivations within our lives. If you are an American... This, like we've just talked about, you in the post-Bernays America, and not like the Benedict, uh, ex-Benedict Bernays, the advert, if you are living, the, this is what you are being shaped by, and this is a primary motivator, and so in many ways, I feel like I've been reading it over the past week, and the deconstructor like gets in the face of like the big bad bully of like consumerism and materialism, which is like, you know, our best friend, and he pokes and pokes and pokes and gets him riled up, and now the deconstructor steps away and goes, you get him, Ryan. And I'm like, this isn't my fight to have. Like, what are you doing? So I, I understand I'm coming to this, and I've got a hard word for all of us today, and nobody likes to bring that. But the second reason why I've been looking for an escape pod is in preaching this, this opens my whole life up to scrutiny. As, as James writes, not many of you should endeavor to become a teacher because you will be judged more strictly. The idea being, those of us that teach this stuff, we have to practice what we preach. And so as I've been preaching this whole week, I've been looking over my own life, my relationship to wealth and possessions, and also knowing that like, I, as the one teaching this, I am opening myself up to that, and that's not fun at all. But my humble hope is in the midst of these two things and leaving the, the escape pod you know, unused for the time being, I might, at any point I might just run out of the building. <laughs> My humble hope today is for us to take one more step into being the people of Jesus by allowing the scriptures to speak to the deep needs of our heart, especially the ones that we don't want scripture to speak to. For us to find the hard truth today that the deconstructor sets before us, that more is less, that more is actually less when it comes to life here under the sun. And so he's, he details a handful of these little lessons that we're going to work through uh, today. The first, back at the beginning in verses 5, 8, and 10, the beginning of our passage where we started, the deconstructor first says that more is less justice. Connecting to last week and the connection to the oppressive ways and the oppression in this world, he notices in 5, 8 through 10, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, he says, don't be surprised. Why? And he talks about this like this ladder, this little pyramid of parasitic self-growth where, where this kind of trickle-up injustice is happening. People taking from those below them to give a little bit to the one on top of them and to keep a little bit for themselves. He says, don't be surprised. Everybody is pursuing. Verse 10, he says, this this love of money that motivates them in all of that. And so this injustice continues to happen within, and this is not just the deconstructor. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, verses 9 and 10. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. The idea here being not just senseless and harmful to them, but also to others that plunge people, not just themselves, but others, into ruin and destruction. And then verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is what the deconstructor is saying in his own words. Those motivated by a love of money, verse 10, is where this verse 8 and 9, injustice and oppression of the poor, comes from. So the deconstructor first begins by asking you and I to look at our society of more and ask, is this leading to more or less justice, more or less righteousness, more or less fairness and equity within our world? And, and most of us have, we, we see this at some level. I mean, we see, you know, the king of Swaziland, was his $17 million private jet, while two-thirds of his country lives on around $2 a day. 
Like we see this kind of love of money that does that to others, but what we've been really good at in America to fuel the consumers and materialism is we keep it away from ourselves, where we don't have to see the oppressive ways that our, our earning and spending are bringing about more injustice within the world as opposed to less. And so the, the, the question is to look, is it my earning and spending? Is, is my purchases and the things that I'm leaning into, the, things that I'm, the way that I'm getting my money and the way that I'm spending it, is this leading to more or less justice in the world, a better or a worse world? The deconstructor says those who are motivated by a love of money, it will not lead, it does not lead to more justice but less. In verse 10, he continues by saying that not only does more lead to less justice, it leads to less satisfaction. He repeats this idea multiple times throughout the passage, talking about how this leads to le- there's less satisfaction to be found in the chase for more. He confirms it over and over again. This is in, confirmed even by sociologists time and again. Uh, Angus Deaton, he was a Nobel laureate, um, uh, he did a bunch of work finding the, the, where is well-being and happiness in connection to how much money you have. And so they did all these tests, and they, it's, they made this whole chart where they could see that, that starting at zero, with every dollar added, you would go up by, with happiness, right? Because you're coming out of more and more poverty. Like, the, you're coming out of poverty. But then what he found is for the average American family of four, it stopped at about $75,000 a year. And then it plateaued. Every, after that point, dollars didn't make you any happier. They didn't change anything about your happiness. And what's, what's fascinating is that as your income went up, then your mental health began to go down. The more money that you had wasn't actually leading up or even just plateauing anymore. Now it was actually making your life worse to the point that the riches of the rich in many cases have a mental health. Their happiness and well-being is on par with someone who lives below the poverty line. So this is exactly what the deconstructor is getting at is that actually what's going on here is is we have, as he says in 6 verse 7, that all of our work, all of our toil is for our mouth, but our appetite is never satisfied. And regardless of how much money you make in a year, we find this regularly. You walk into your closet that is packed with clothes, and what do you lament? I have nothing to wear. You sit on your couch with this thing called Netflix, and now you've got like every streaming service with more content than you could ever watch in your life. And you fall down what's called the Netflix rabbit hole, where you spend your whole night just looking at the options. This is why Netflix last year, they came out the the just watch something uh, thing. Where you literally just go, I don't know, and they just, they, they give you something. Which is so, we're now back to cable, where you're just like, I guess we'll see what's on TV and just watch that. So this is actually what's resulting in less satisfaction. This is your cereal aisle. This is, this is the fact that you, we have the whole world in front of us. With all the, the money that we have, we have more available to us than ever before, and you're not more satisfied, you're less. The deconstructor says, and actually the more that you have, the less you'll be satisfied with what you have. He continues in verse 11, not just is more or less justice, not only is it less satisfaction, it's less community. He says, the more that you have, the more people will relate to you solely by your wealth. Verse 11, what does he say? When goods increase, they, it's the, these people that come around him, they increase who eat them. The more that you have, the more you have like family members and friends that show up. And like, oh, hey, like I'm your second, twice removed, third, like you don't even know me. But I'm just here, you know, I didn't know if you I mean, got this investment thing that I thought you could jump in on. There's like a whole language, like gold digger. There's a whole like thing about this where the more that you have, the more people will solely relate to you by the money that you have. That will become the, the main basis of your relationship with them. Not who you are, but what you can give. Living here in Los Angeles, we had a, a friend uh, in, in our church community who, who moved, but she still works with managing like the books for like really wealthy celebrities. And I was just like, what if, you know, asking her now, I was just like, what, what's the most incredible, like what was the most surprising thing? The most surprising thing for her was not how much like they spent it on just like stupid stuff. She was expecting that. But the most astounding thing was how much of their wealth, how much of their income went out to other people. There's other people that related to them solely as like big fat piggy banks that they just gave their money to and they lived off of someone else's success. The deconstructor, that kind of like, what benefit is your money if you're not the one that's getting to enjoy it and all these people are pulling it away from you? So you have the celebrity cadres, but man, I've even seen this happen within churches, like within church planning movements. There's these church planning experts that'll come and they'll come talk to you about how to really get a good church going and how to make this thing really you know, lasting. And what they will really hit on is the need for a, a white whale or two. 
And the way that they're talking about this is, is that you need a couple of really, really wealthy people who are really generous in your church because you can't really trust other people to be generous and to actually, you know, obey the Bible. So what you need is some really rich people. And they talk about, like, white whales. you got to hunt them down and get them latched in. And just, you know, you sit here and you hear them pastors, they start using this language. Some of the most dehumanizing language to talk about another person where these people heard their pastors talking about them that way. You see, the deconstructor is, that's a whole other conversation about the mess that is like, you know, American church stuff. But the deconstructor is saying, hey, you think that your chase of more will give you more people around you? They will not relate to you based off of who you are. They will relate to you off what's in your back pocket, about your bank account. And man, even if we can just take a step aside from the deconstructor here, but on the point of less community, this is one of the other key things that deconstructor doesn't necessarily speak. He does, but you'd have to force him, and I'm not looking to do that with one of his verses. You could, the whole point of what I'm trying to say is this leads to less community, not just in how other people relate to us, but then how we are able to relate to other people. Some of us are far too distracted with more to be able to experience the community life that we're looking for. And that's more with, with, your, with your wealth and the work that you give yourself to in order to have it. That is more with your experiences. That is more, that some of you are just too busy for community. And in a city like Los Angeles that will give you each and everything, there's something to do every single week, and I know it. There's a concert every other week. You live in California. Santa Barbara's that way. San Diego's that way, right? We got LAX right here. You can fly it anyway. The, the temptation, the fear that ought to be before us, the deconstructor would say, is there are some of us that we are far too rich in experiences and poor in community. He continues in saying that not only are we finding less community in our more, we're also finding just less gain. Verses 13 and 16, we have less gain. Why? Because he says in verse 16, those who accrue their wealth, in verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. And then he says in verse 14, as he continues into 15, you're, you're gonna die and lose it all anyway. You actually have no gain for your life. You spend your whole life accruing this incredible savings account and you've got nothing to show for it. So your pursuit of more is actually less in the long term. You see, he says your toil for more is a grasping at wind. There is nothing lasting in this life, and your savings account is not safe. You are going, you're going to lose it all sooner or later, whether that's a bad venture or when you die. And again, if we think the deconstructor is just being really depressive right here, Jesus himself, Luke chapter 12, says the story. Jesus said to them, his disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced really plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. Pause right here. Oh, no. Go back. <laughs> up to this point, modern understanding of economics, wise or foolish? Wise. He's diversifying his portfolio. He's, he's in, wise or foolish? Incredibly wise. Story goes, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Chapter six, verse eight, the stranger is, is would be the deconstructor's answer. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Your pursuit of more in the, in the long run of life is actually less. You will actually have, you'll be, as naked as you came out is as naked as you're going back. And so what that then leads to is in 5, 12, 13, and 17, that it actually results in less health because of the stress of it all. Note, remember, he said, sweet is the sleep of the person who works, whether they have a lot or a little, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. And then he continues that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And then again, 17, the one is rich. In all his days, he, he lives, he eats in darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. Your pursuit of more, your accrual of more actually results in less health. You're exhausted. You can't sleep at night. You're, 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 you're doing damage to your body through your stress and your anxiety of, of, of keeping it now that you have it. 
of this anxiety, fear, stress, and anger is what he says, of keeping and upkeeping it. So this is the stress of, you have all the stress in the world to finally be able to get the car that you want. And then what comes is the, the anxiety and the fear of like, what if I, you know, I park and it gets a door ding? Or what happens if this breaks down and then this, right? I'm just, in LA, nobody cares. Like we get like these expensive cars and then we just treat them like trash. It's incredible to me. Because we can't afford, we, get, we, we buy the Tesla and then it just gets like beaten. Like, do you not, uh, this, is this just me? I drive around L.A., and there's these incredible cars that are literally falling apart. And the whole point is they finally got up to their thing, the thing that they've been waiting for, and they spent all their money on it. And now they don't have the money for upkeep. And so they drive around in that thing. But the whole point is, I don't even know where we just get those total aside. That's not in my notes. Ryan's like, talk about the weird cars on the street. The whole point is, I mean, you, you do this with your home, you do this with possessions, is you work and work and work, and then you're able to, you get the condo or you get the house, and then you, you go, oh, now my soul is settled. No, now there's renovations to be done. Now there's furniture to be bought. Now there's like, what are we gonna do with that wall? That wall needs some decoration. Like that TV is too small for our house now, <laughs> right? So the whole point is he's saying, you actually end up finding less physical and emotional health by your pursuit of more, because as you get more, then you need more. And, so, and it's exhausting to you. In the, in the words of the cultural anal, uh, analyst, uh, Notorious B.I.G., he said, mo' money, mo' problems. And this is precisely what the deconstructor is getting at. You get more, and then what you find is it doesn't deal with anxiety. It gives you more of it. But also, it's not just that, that once we get it, we, have to, we work to keep it, but that also, those of us who get onto the treadmill of more, we can't get off. And the chase of more becomes the chase of more of more. We're unsatisfied with it. And so we stay on the treadmill believing that we finally will find it. You might have known the name of Rockefeller. You know, he was, he was you know, at his height of, of wealth, he had 1% of the United States GDP. 90% of all oil was, was through him. He makes like Musk and Bates and like Bezos look like wannabes, like children with wealth that he had. He was interviewed. Uh, some woman walked up to him and asked this, this question. How much money is enough money? And the richest man in the world, richer than you could ever think, his answer was, just a little bit more. Unsatisfied, anxious, and angry to keep what we have and to get just a little bit more. And he says that this sort of life is a life that is lived. All his days are in darkness. It's an allusion to death. The one whose life is about accruing and pursuing more, they are walking death like a never satisfied or satiated zombie. They move through their life, grabbing and biting and going for more. And this is what he continues with. Can you end with his, his final kind of you know, lamenting of how more is less, where he says that more is actually less life, not in quantity, but in quality. In chapter six, verse, or verses one through six, he details this individual who has this large family. They live a long life. They have all that they could ever want, but they can't get satisfied. They can't find the satisfaction in those things. And this is the hardest words in all of the book. The deconstructor says that they're, in, in comparison to their life, the still, a stillborn child has, a life, has, has an existence better than theirs. I mean, for any of us that have, that have suffered miscarriage or loss, these are some of the sharp, very sharp and cutting words for any of us who've experienced this or been with friends or family members who have. Because as we look back, we remember these occasions. We, remind, we are reminded of the loss of life, of the loss of a son or daughter, the loss of, of joy in the experience. Like there's this whole future and potential that gets cut down and lost in this moment. And the deconstructor uses one of the hardest moments within the human experience as a wake-up call. He says, even if the rich live for 2,000 years, even if they have this giant family, the fact that they are never satisfied, their existence is the same as that, that lost child. And he actually goes even further and goes, not only are they the same in that their life has lived in darkness and vanity and it all comes and goes with, with no seeming gain. He says, actually, the stillborn child is better off than him because at least they have rest. Whereas the one pursuing and accruing more is always anxious, always angry, always in turmoil. At least that child had peace. Hard words, but words that Jesus himself mirrored when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? You see, Jesus, like the deconstructor, saw our relationship to wealth and possessions and experiences, our relationship to more, as vital to, the, to what is keeping us from the good life, 
keeping us from the true life. Jesus talked about, if you go through the Gospels and count Jesus talking about money, 25% of his teachings are about wealth, possessions, or income. Can you imagine, like, once a month, you guys come and it's like, oh, it's Ryan's money talk this week. Like, the, the room would be empty. It'd just be like me in here. But I think Jesus is genuinely onto something here. This is a primary motivator that we pursue more and we end up finding less and it drives us crazy. 25% of Jesus' teachings are about this and his teachings are just as strong as the deconstructor. Jesus says things like, it's impossible to serve God in money. He says, it's near impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has a radical word that challenges us as he stands alongside the deconstructor and says, more is less. When you pursue this, you will find less justice in this world, less satisfaction in your heart, less community around you, less gain at the end of your life, less health within your life, and all around, less life altogether. You see, our, that offering, the post-Bernays world, this constantly moving happiness machines is the reality that you and I actually, when we investigate and see it all together with the deconstructor, what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that we are not constantly moving happiness machines. We are sad, lifeless automatons pursuing less and trying to stick it in and trying to find the life that we were made for. And we keep picking up things that only wound us and hurt our world more. The deconstructor has a, bit, a better way. Something that he wants to invite us in, not just to, to resist, but a way that is, as he puts it, the good and fitting or the beautiful life. Right in the middle of the passage today, the deconstructor sets before us the good life, and it is a life that actually finds that less is more. That less is more, that as we actually let go of that pursuit and the accrual of more, we actually find more of the life that we are made for. He begins in verse 18 by saying that less is more simplicity, which sounds weird. It sounds like saying less is more less. But what I mean by simplicity is that less is more of this ability to find that joy and delight in the simple and ordinary parts of your life. The ones that are so hard, the smoke and mirrors for the rich to find. The deconstructor says that joy and entertainment, that enjoyment of your life that you are longing for and you chase on that, that treadmill of consumerism and materialism for, that joy that you're actually looking for is located in, what does he say? Eating, drinking, and your, your work for the few days that you have. This kind of eating, drinking language is, is meant to be this kind of poetic. He does this regularly throughout Ecclesiastes. It's about more than just like where you're going to lunch today. It's a way of talking, excuse me. It's a way of talking about the very like ordinary, plain, like experiences of life. A way of talking about what you eat and drink is the very, or you eat and drink every single day. It's the ordinary parts of your life. This isn't like Nobu is what he's talking about here. He's talking about the very ordinary rhythms of life, that this is actually the place where joy is found. Specifically, the joy that you're looking for, it's right in front of you. But you've blocked it out through all of this consumerism and more. And I would argue that in our age, of a post-Bernays world of consumerism and materialism, that it is not enough for us simply to hear, hey, enjoy the simple things in your life. I believe we actually have to be quite intentional in clearing out space to give attention to those things. Some of our lives are far too cluttered with both stuff and experiences and just even with money to actually be able to enjoy those things. We're just too comfortable to actually enjoy our lives. I mean, this is like Wally, anyone? We're like a Pixar family and we're in love with all of it. But well, the whole point is like they're just, they're so comfortable that they're not even enjoying like the existence of life. Little people on the spaceship, right? Sorry. I have a five-year, these are all of my cool cultural things now are kids' movies, okay? I'm sorry. This is my life. I don't watch cool movies anymore. <laughs> I only watch cartoons. But the, so what he's saying is that in, this, that in an age where we, we are so comfortable that we actually have to be intentional to give our attention to the simple things of life. And so this is what you want to call the simplicity as the practice, and, and that can bring a lot of connotations of what I mean by that. When I say simplicity, I'm not talking about like this minimal Scandinavian apartment, <laughs> right? Where it's just like you walk in, it's just like all white, like everything's white, and you're just like, this is, this is welcome to the future. This is my domicile. That, 
because here's the thing is, is what, what I found in myself is that like a minimalistic like aesthetic, we can be just as consumerist with those kinds of things. What I'm talking about here, when we talk about the, the invitation of the practice of simplicity, is about freedom from the tyranny of more. And, and you can do that with every kind of style you have within your house or the clothing that you wear. A, a way of simplicity is, is a way, a posture of, of as regularly as we can saying no to more so that we can actually say yes to the joy that's right here in front of us. And so that comes with simplicity, and that can be our budget, our wardrobe, our possessions, our entertainment, our experiences, and our vacations of saying, what would it look like for us to start saying yes to what's right here in front of us, what we eat and drink in our work, believing that's the place where the gift of God's enjoyment is found, as opposed to chasing after more. But that is a joy. Once again, why we have to be intentional about this is this is a joy that's easily lost in a post-Bernays world. Like, here's the thing. I'm going to talk, but whatever. The, I, when I, there was this really cool time in my life when I was cool. I lost it. It was like right around like the beginning of college. Um, I, I, I peaked early. The, so I was really into post, like post-rock, like Icelandic post-rock. I was telling all my friends about this really cool new band from Wisconsin called Bon Iver, and I was making sure everybody pronounced it right. Maybe I wasn't cool. Um, but... So the whole thing was, was growing up within the church, I had really started reading a lot of like some of this kind of stuff within the scriptures and other authors. And like I did this whole thing where like I, I took the smallest bedroom in the house, like I got rid of like all the, like a bunch of my stuff and I had this mattress on the floor. My parents are in town, my mom's nodding because she thought it was crazy. And I, my room was literally a mattress on the floor and like a bookshelf and then like a couple of Polaroids because man, I was really cool. Like, like on the wall of like, you know, pictures of friends and stuff like that. And man, I tell you what, like, that was this season of my life where I, some of the, like, like they're just this, like, I was in an at-easement of, like, just things. Just enjoying my life, like, being in college. I was also dating Aaron, like, you know, that whole, like, thing was kicking off, so that was probably part of it. But then this thing happened. I got an iPhone. And there was this really cool new app that had just come out called Instagram. And we're off to the races. And then dating Aaron became moving out of college and into a career and marriage apartments and homes, and what, what ends up happening is just within that whole process, little by little, things begin to get picked up, a snowball effect of consumerism and materialism, this car and these clothes and this thing and that thing, and then like, uh, like he talked about in the Journal of Retailing, I mean, those like spiritual rituals is like every single Apple keynote, it was like a, it was like a, it was like a Mecca event for me. Where I'm like, all right, I got my Apple T-shirt on, and I'm like, here we go, Steve. Like, show me the iPad. Like, show me what we're gonna get. And it was this spiritual experience. And then I've got to get it. We get into the house, and then it's like, you know, not just light bulbs, these smart light bulbs, because I can tell Siri to turn off the lights, right? And we just accrue all of these things. And more and more, the more that I move myself into that, I found the very thing the deconstructor said today: more is less. And then that's, I think, the thing we have to be so wary of is for many of us, you know, we, we put things on Instagram and we wear shirts or like people over products and we do not give the attention to the fact that we are being shaped in a very manipulative and even subconscious, that unconscious desire, that Freudian level, that little over little, year over year, decade over decade, our best of intentions, we actually find ourselves finding that more is less. And so as I've been stepping into that, and, and I'm inviting you guys to as well, one of the really helpful resources for this has been practicingtheway.com. Specifically, there's stuff on simplicity. There's the URL. You can go to that this week and, and geek out and, and just and, and lean into what that might look like for you. This has been helpful for me as taking these steps into this greater simplicity of finding that less truly is more. And, and to get plagiarism claims out of the way, a lot of the quotes, Bernays and all that stuff from the beginning, right here. Um, so it was just too good. It was so helpful for me to fit the deconstructor's words into like our larger context. So I'm not a plagiarist. I got it from them. <laughs> now here's the thing. <laughs> this is uh, anyone know what Enneagram One is? If, like this is like weird stuff. Personality type. Yeah, that's why I'm a good boy now. I didn't. I didn't cheat. So simplicity is absolutely the way that we've been called to, I, and, and I think that's what the deconstructor is saying here, and that call to enjoying the simple things of life, that we actually have to be quite intentional about doing that. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, uh, we keep coming back to it because it's basically Paul just talking about this passage. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of it. There's that Ecclesiastes stuff. But what does he say? But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Do you see the simplicity in that statement? Like food and drink. If I've got this, with this I'm going to be content. But notice that what he smothers the simplicity in is what? Contentment. Which is actually the second thing that the deconstructor uh, sets us on. In verse 19, he invites us to give up our pursuit of more and to just simply enjoy the wealth and the possessions that you have. Now, this feels like a tension for you. At least it did for me. Because in verse 18, he says, simplicity, enjoy the simple things in life. And then verse 19, he goes, but enjoy the possessions that you have and the wealth. Which is it? What one is it? Do I live a life of simplicity and like sell everything I have and like just, you know, the clothes on my back and the food that I find? Or do I enjoy the wealth and the possessions I have? I, I think what the deconstructor is setting before us is uh, like Johnny Langdon on his slack line at the park <laughs> is this, this balance that he's inviting us into of one of a walking in a way of wisdom, of not jumping into this kind of like ascetic simplicity that we see the created world and the, the fruit of our labors is bad but also not jumping headlong on the other side into a contentment that ends up being comfortability and consumerism. That if we walk this, this through line of, of simplicity with contentment, it actually helps us navigate through a lot of the decisions and the questions that we have. Because nowhere in the Bible is there a rule for how many shoes you have in your closet or what kind of shoes you have. It's not here. There's not an appendix for like, you know, it depends if Nike, this many, like it doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't offer any answers about how many clothes in your closet, about the kind of car that you drive, about the kind of parties that you throw. It doesn't give a calendar for when to get a new phone. It doesn't give a square footage for your home. It doesn't give an answer about home ownership at all. It doesn't give anything about like renovations. It sets the slack line of simplicity and contentment, and it invites you through wisdom to walk within that way. And I believe what, what motivates our steps is the last verse of the text. Uh, in 6 verse 9, where well, the deconstructor says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also, the wandering of your appetite, it's smoke and mirrors and striving after winds. So if, if I can just operate with the assumption as I move through my life that what I have is probably better than the new shiny thing, and if I can see that most of the desires and what I want is largely just smoke and mirrors and me chasing after wind, I, I, think, I think I'll be able to walk the slack line fairly well. And so if we were wanting to step into this, along with simplicity, is, is this practice of, and I'm giving all these not as like a to-do list for you, but just to take maybe one of these, depending on where you're at, is the use of um, the practice of a weekly Sabbath. Sabbath is a weekly, it's an open-handed day, not just where we take rest from our work, but also where we don't buy stuff, we don't shop, we're not perusing Amazon, and even more and more as, as most of our social media becomes nothing more than just selling us stuff, we take a break from that as well. It's just the new mall. We take a break from that kind of stuff, and on Sabbath, we have a day of just enjoying and being content with what we have, finding pleasure in those simple and good things. And so that's another offering for you. But as we round things up, the deconstructor actually infers a third invitation in verses 18 and 20. He describes, if you look at the, the passage right here, three times you'll notice that he says uh, to enjoy the simple things. Why? Because it's a gift that God has given for him. And then also to enjoy the wealth and possessions, the power that you have. Why? God has given them. And then also rejoice in all of your work. Why? This is a gift of God. Three times. Gift, gift, given, 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 gift. What's he getting at here? Is he's describing that all that you have is a gift from God. Now what this does is when you're able to work this posture down into your bones, is this actually empowers your simplicity and contentment because you're able to receive what you have as a gift from God. Simplicity is not some kind of berating and beating myself into being somebody better. It's, it's simply receiving the good life is right here and it's the gift that God has given me in this life. And contentment means that I can be content in, in the life that I have because I believe that this is, this, my life is not something to escape, but it's something that God has given me as a gift. But what this also does is it doesn't just empower our simplicity and contentment. This understanding also then empowers and fuels our generosity, where our simplicity and our contentment then move from being focused solely on ourselves and our own health to the greater benefit of those around us. We become generous. The posture of responsibly stewarding the gift of all that we have through giving. And so if you want to know where, where does that look like, what is generosity? The biblical starting point is at like 
First fruits is the language, which I would argue biblically is a case for 10% of our gross income. That's the starting point. As a starting indicating line drive of where we begin to undo some of the effects of materialism and consumerism is, by, is by, by just forcing ourselves to cut off a percentage of me going, that belongs to God, to get us to see that all of it does. And that's the starting point. Because if you want to go through the Gospels, you can make a case that it's probably somewhere between 50% and 100% based on how he deals with the rich man and how he deals with Lazarus. Not Lazarus, Zacchaeus, the little guy in the tree. Not the dead guy. <laughs> so there's the thing. Somewhere between 10% and 100% is what the biblical framework is for a, st- a posture of, g- of living generously as a result of the fact that your whole life is a gift. And what we find as you do this is not just that you're doing the right thing. You're finding the life that actually results in, as the deconstructor says, more joy. Or as Jesus says, it's more blessed. That is the word happy. It's more happy to give than to receive. And social scientists have found this time and again to be the truth. The more you give, the happier you are. And what's fascinating is unlike uh, that little, the little marker that went up and then plateaued and down for your income, that one doesn't stop. The more that you give, it continues. To, they just quit. They, they literally quit tracking it because they, did, they never found a, flat, a plateau point. You could, the more that you give, the more happy you find yourself to be. This is, our, again, Paul in 1 Timothy. I think 1 Timothy 6 is just his version of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, as for the Westsiders in Los Angeles, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. To set their hopes on what? On God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul takes the deconstructor and even Jesus' story of the, the rich fool who builds all those things up to treasure up his grain, and he turns it on his head, and he says the true savings account, the true treasure to pursue, the true thing to make your economic focus is generosity. Paul would have us take the kind of like angel investor mentality of looking for some startup to invest in and rewire that to looking for someone to care for, to looking for someone to be about and to be generous towards. Like some of you are obsessed with like crypto and NFTs. Paul would be like, I wanna take that and I wanna redeem that in light of the work of Jesus and I want you to be that obsessive about finding ways to serve your community, your local church and finding the work of who you're with. You see, this is the the practice that I think he's inviting us to that we cannot forego. And so for some of us, here's the way that we need to practice this. You need to sit down and actually have a budget for your life. For some of you, you need to go back and relook at that budget. And as you do that, to, to allow those shaping priorities to be simplicity, contentment, and generosity. So I'm not saying like, I never go get coffee with people. Like, enjoy, enjoy what you, but contentment. To sit down and prioritize these things and allow the big rocks that become the first things that get laid down to be these sorts of things. Because again, if you don't, you will, your money, your life will be budgeted by someone. And Bernays has been doing a great job for 100 years. And so for the people of Jesus that are looking to find this sort of true, better, good life, it begins with a priority towards generosity. For some of us, this looks like what's called a fixed income living, where you literally, you live like a retired person. You figure out how much money is the money that we need to live with, and then you cut, you go, that's what we live with, and we fix our budget at that. Anything else that comes in above the top, that goes immediately out towards the poor. It goes to our local church community. It goes to some kind of uh, effect of, of budget where we can find to care and serve others. And that sounds radical. That is, that is a large percentage of really faithful Christians have done throughout the ages. It's been lost within the American culture, but... This, I mean, this is the thing is, I, on one hand, this feels so radical to set before us, and yet this has been throughout the ages, the way that the faithful people of Jesus have found how do they relate to their money and their wealth, their possessions, their experiences, is this less is more kind of mentality. This is the good, fitting, beautiful way that we find, as Paul just said, this is where true life is found, and this is what the deconstructor says as well. 6 verse 20, as we land the plane. 
At the very end of what, what he said, he looks over what is good, fitting to, and, uh, to eat, drink, contentment, simplicity. In verse 20 he says, for he being God will not much remember the days of his life, or sorry, the, the, the uh, person who lives with simplicity and contentment will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So what he basically says, if you live with simplicity, generosity, and contentment, what you're going to find is you're not gonna remember the days of your life, the fact that they're limited. He goes, man, you go into this sort of life, you will have this kind of enjoyment in your heart that overflows and almost causes you to set aside and forget the fact that you're going to die. And you can actually just enjoy your life. Because the thing is, as long as you're chasing for more, that, that you just see the big grim reaper waiting to take it all from you and you clench even more, you get even more anxious about it all. But the moment that you begin to live with this posture of giftedness, it's almost like you're able to set aside death. Now the question is, is verse 20 and what God keeps us being occupied, is this God giving us a diversion? Is that like the little grace that God has in this world where we're all gonna die as he's like, hey, come with me, you know, be simple, be content, be generous, and, and I'll help you kind of forget about the fact that like you're gonna die. It could be seen that way as a distraction, but I believe in light of where the story is going, this is far more than just a distraction. This is actually a foretaste of what the life that we're made for, the life that's found in Jesus. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, the irony of what we looked at today is that the way that the thief steals, kills, and destroys is by offering you more by trapping you and dragging you in with the consumerism and the materialism of just a little bit more. And what Jesus says is he's holding out for us. For those of us, man. What Jesus says before us here, for those of us who have come to the, the, the end of our rope and that we have found the truth of what the deconstructor has said, that less is more, Jesus stands and says, I have come that you have, to give you the life that you've actually been looking for this whole time the thing that you've been chasing for, the thing that you've been longing for, the thing that you've thought that your experiences and your vacations and your car, and your, whatever has been able to give you is the thing that you've actually been looking for has been, it's been waiting for you. And it's far more than you could ever gain is the sad reality of the fact. But the good news is it's actually far less than you might be prone to think that it is. The life that you've been looking for, a joyous life overflowing with life, where death is not just forgotten but finished forever, it's me, Jesus says. I am the place in where this is found. Through my death for you, all of the injustice, the anger, the anxiety, the broken relationships, the, the, the death, all of that is, that is in this world through human greed. I, I bring that onto myself so that in my death, I may give you the true life that you've been looking for. This overflowing life, another way of talking about this, this resurrection life, both for you and in you, this abundant life that overflows into God's renewed and coming new creation. And that life is not just something that we're waiting for, a hope like Paul said, it's something that begins today. That if we are invited by Jesus and if we receive and respond to that invitation, we get off the treadmill of more and we begin to find the joy in less. As we enter into this life of simplicity, we actually find new creation joy. As we intentionally make room for God's gift of ordinary life to bloom, that in the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus came back with a touchable, an eating, a huggable, like a material body. That the good life that you're waiting for is not some spirit existence, but it's the, it's the here, flesh and blood existence. And so that means that, that my, my, what I eat and my drink, my ordinary life is not something I need to escape. It's actually the very place that resurrection power has come to bloom within. I'm able to walk into contentment and find new creation satisfaction as I receive all that I have as being a gift from God. I'm able to walk in generosity and then experience new creation life as I begin to not just live with a posture that everything that I have is a gift from God, but my own salvation, my own resurrection is a gift from God. And so all that I have is the posture of responsibly stewarding that gift, and the only way you can steward a gift is by giving it to someone else. You re-gift it. We are looking for resistance, a way to get out of the more and the materialism, the consumerism of our world. And, and what we need to see is satisfaction in this life is found in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the one who is inviting us to find the more that we're looking for and to give up the fact that all we've been pursuing is far less than we were made for.
And if that faithfulness, that resurrection power of Jesus becomes the indicative drive of our life, it becomes the thing that we give ourselves over to, what we find is a freedom. When we're able to break the, the chains of the materialism, the consumerism, the anxiety, and the fear that you have, is we're able to walk in the freedom believing that God has us. Or, as Hebrews 13, 5 says, as we close, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? What is the basis for this? The fact that Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There are some of us that are chasing and our inability to be content with what we have. Our chase for more is rooted in the fact that we just don't believe that God has us. Whether that's safety or experiences or some pursuit, we just, we, we feel forsaken and left out. And so the invitation for all of us today is to step into the invitation of Jesus, trusting him and finding that actually as we let go of more, we actually find the true more that we were made for. Let's pray.